When Karen A. Clark got her first management assignment as a young banker at Bank of America in Los Angeles, she was blown away when a senior editor and Chinese immigrant named Regina Chun flew in from San Francisco just to take her to lunch. She said that you now have the opportunity to help minorities, in particularly women, and in particularly Black women. And she said, I tell you this because if you don't accept this responsibility, if you don't understand this charge, who will? Clark never forgot Chun's advice. Indeed, she ended up devoting her entire career to fostering inclusion and diversity in the banking industry. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Joining me now is Karen A. Clark. She's Senior Vice President and Multicultural Strategies Manager at City National Bank in Los Angeles. Clark is currently working to ensure that minority-owned companies in and around the city get fair access to COVID-19 small business relief funds. In her free time, Clark also is a singer, songwriter, and producer in her entertainment company, The Karen A. Clark Project. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Chitra, thank you so much for having me. You were an Air Force brat. You traveled all over the world with your parents, and it was quite a formative experience for you. Tell us about your parents and and what that childhood did for you. I did travel all over the world with my parents. Both of my parents were from teeny small towns here in the United States, my mother, Pennsylvania, my father, Oklahoma. And they both joined the Air Force at age 18. For my mother, that was 1950. And, uh, and she met my father in the service. And they got married, they had four kids, and they fulfilled their dream of traveling the world and having adventures, and they took us right along with them. And I had a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful childhood. I think traveling, especially from a young age, just opens up your eyes to what the possibilities are in the world. And it helps you to understand that though we face boundaries and obstacles in our life, the world is a huge place. And with some curiosity and a little bit of gumption, you can learn and travel and do so much. And it just makes you ready to be able to meet anyone, to be able to interface with anyone. It makes you comfortable in a multicultural world. Now you, it was quite an extraordinary experience, I think, particularly given that your parents weren't uh, extremely wealthy or anything like that, and yet they gave you kind of the riches of wealth of, of knowledge and travel. They did, they did. So my mom, she had to, you know, uh, she, she couldn't be active duty with children. So of course she uh, stepped down from active duty. She became a reservist, uh, but my father, um, stayed in the service for 20 years and then civil service after that. And he never reached more than the rank of maybe a staff sergeant, which is an enlisted man. So they didn't have a lot of money. And my mother did not go back to work until I was in junior high school, but they always saved money so that we had a proper summer vacation. We not flying around on planes, all six of us, but in a car, we'd jump in a car and my father would take us across the country We'd see relatives and we'd see states in between and we always stopped in time enough to swim in the motel swimming pool and get takeout food from a big boy restaurant or, you know, some hamburger stand. And it was always so extremely special. My, my parents 
always made us feel like we had such a rich, wonderful life, even though we didn't have a whole lot. And I just loved my life growing up and being exposed to so many experiences. I mean, my dad took us, you know, skiing in Germany. He took me to see my first jazz concert uh, at the Frankfurt Opera House. He took me to see my first musical in San Francisco. He took me, he thought it was important that his teenage daughter saw this production of Colored Girls by the late, great Entezaki Shang. I mean, my dad, he just thought it was important for us to have cultural experiences. Uh, even on Sunday afternoon, we would, after dinner, go get scoop of ice cream and ride around in the car and just look at people's yards and look at their lawns. And he was just an immersive kind of a father. And, uh, and my mother, with her free spirit, was right along with him. And they just opened up the world to us. How did that help you when you ended up in, in the banking industry, uh, especially the lessons that your father taught you? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, I, so I did. I ended up in the banking industry. I went to uh, college. I, I um, you know, had to, had to struggle my way through college, hustle my way through college. And what I really wanted to be was an entertainer. I had grown up singing and dancing and talent shows and all of that kind of stuff. Got to college, took all of the theater arts and you know, I just did a history of theater and acting and dancing. And yeah, I was, I was all about it. And then when I graduated from college and I ended up in Los Angeles with my husband, with my late husband and two, two babies. I mean, my kids were two and three years old because we had our kids in college. We got married and had our kids in college. And so when I came out, I didn't have the luxury of uh, trying to find a, a creative job. We came to LA and I did a few auditions, but after two or three weeks, I said, I better go to a head, headhunter and, and get a real job because my husband also was a creative type. He was working for an independent film company, making no money. And so we were really struggling. So I went to a headhunter and that's how I ended up in, in banking, but I never gave up the arts. And what was that like being a young African-American woman in what probably was an incredibly white male dominated industry at the time? It, yeah, it really was. And, and what happened is I, I have a degree in economics. I went to a headhunter, dropped off my degree, and um, I got a call. And she said, I have an interview for you at Wells Fargo Bank. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to be a teller. That's all I knew about banking. And I had a few friends in college who had been tellers, and none of them had been successful at it. Didn't balance, they, you know, they just didn't enjoy the job. And I said, no, thank you. I don't want to be a teller. And she said, no, this is in commercial real estate. And I said, really, what do banks do with commercial real estate? I mean, I just had no idea. And so I went to work for Wells Fargo Bank and commercial real estate construction lending. And yes, what it was, and it still is very white male uh, dominated. And I was working on 20 to $100 million participation loans, you know, huge construction uh, projects on a global basis. And so you'd be in conference rooms with credit officers and loan officers and attorneys from both sides and mostly all white males. And here's, you know, this little girl, 27, 28 year old uh, black girl sitting at the table. And what I realized very quickly is that I was comfortable. I was comfortable sitting in these conference rooms at these tables with these men who were in most cases much older than me, looked much different than me, were in a positions of authority and power you know, a lot of them, especially the clients, millions and millions of dollars, 
And I felt comfortable. And what I realized is that my father, through all the experiences that he gave me, he taught me how to swim with sharks. And I use that analogy because a lot of people um, talk about swimming with sharks, but I don't think a lot of people really understand what the, what the paradigm is. And what it is, a lot of people are afraid of sharks because you know, shark, a shark will bite you, a shark can kill you. But a lot of species of sharks don't even bite. The thing that most sharks have in common though, regardless of what species they are, is that they are very, very fast. They can sneak up on you, they can pivot like a dime, they can twist and turn, and they're extremely fast and responsive. And that's what it's like sitting in a boardroom when you're dealing with millions and millions of dollars and people in positions of authority and power that can snap their fingers and they've got you know, hundreds and thousands of people working for them. And they're like sharks. They move quick. They make decisions quickly. I mean, you've got to be ready when you step into those conference rooms, even now. But back then, I realized my dad had prepared me to be very comfortable in these global settings with people that I seemingly don't have anything in common with. And so I'm very comfortable in a room full of sharks. That's a wonderful story. How did you get into the diversity and inclusion field and, and who are your mentors along the way? Yeah, so I, I got my first management assignment at Bank of America and I was uh, in commercial real estate and there was a woman named Regina Chen, Reggie Chen we called her, um, and she was a Chinese immigrant. She came to this country when she was a young girl and didn't speak any, any English. But when I met her at Bank of America, she was an executive vice president managing uh, loan administration and some portion of credit nationally. And when I got my first management assignment at Bank of America in commercial real estate, Reggie Chun, who was three or four layers removed from me, flew down from San Francisco to have lunch with me. And she told me that I had a very unique opportunity. She said that you now have the opportunity to help minorities, in particularly women, and in particularly Black women. And she said, I tell you this because if you don't accept this responsibility, if you don't understand this charge, who will? She said, I have, throughout my entire career, made sure that I was looking out for minorities, in particular women, and in particularly Asian women. She said, because who else will do it? She said, but however, when you help these women, it's got to be so above board. It's got to be so pristine that when you're questioned, there's no doubt that you made the right decision in promoting this person or advocating for this individual because you will always, as a person of color, as a woman of color, be under scrutiny for the decisions that you make. And I never, ever, ever forgot that lesson. It's my, it is my responsibility. And so that was the very first mentor. I didn't even know what the word mentor meant. And I would see Reggie from time to time in meetings. We didn't have a formal relationship, but she always lent herself to a discussion or conversation or advice. And I learned that mentors can come in all shapes, sizes, and forms. And whether they realize you're, they are your mentor or not, they can be if you want them to be and they've created access for you. Just don't give up that access and you'll have a mentor. 
And the best mentor relationships are organic, like the one you had with Reggie Chun. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I got into to, um, the diversity work in, in that ser- very same unit. Uh, it was a, a, a late 80s. And the commercial real estate industry uh, had a very hard time in the 80s. But in the, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, things uh, kind of fell apart in, in the commercial real estate uh, industry. But Bank of America, around the same time, bought Security Pacific Bank. And they did two large asset sales, non-performing asset sales, to try to get rid of some of the non-performing uh, um, assets. And what was left, they split into three groups around the country. And one of them was here in LA. And I was managing the loan administration portfolio for a $7 billion non-performing portfolio. And um, we had a five-year plan, loan administration, credit, to work through these assets. And we worked through that plan in three years, but the real estate market hadn't quite rebounded. And so I had 30 women and one man reporting to me and I had to make some hard decisions because we had worked through our $7 billion portfolio, the quote unquote good side of the bank, the good side of the real estate portfolio was not well enough yet to absorb all of the worked out people back into the into the unit. And so I had to lay off a good number of people. I laid off, I believe it was nine people. Other people found their own ways, their own jobs, either at the bank or at a different bank. And then there I was, and I'm like, what about me? What am I going to do? And it just so happened that the whole online career thing had, you know, had had come on. And so I was able, and I had taken classes, because back then it wasn't as simple as just, you know, clicking a button and bam, you're on the career side, or clicking a button and you can do an email. You, but you had to take classes to basically learn how to program your way into um, a, a program or a system. And so I had done that, and so I could get into the career side. And the bank was advertising for five positions in the brand new corporate diversity department. And the bank had hired an organization called J. Howard and Associates, the J standing for Jeff. And Jeff Howard was the foremost cutting edge thinker back in the early 90s around inclusion. And the bank hired him to design a course uh, that would address unconscious bias. And it wasn't called that then uh, by the industry but Jeff Howard was already teaching, managing inclusion. And he designed a two-day course that Bank of America was going to put 20,000 associates through on a mandatory basis. J. Howard Associates had 12 trainers and they wanted to add five trainers from Bank of America. And the only requirements were that you were at least a VP and that you had managed people and you could apply. And I applied, I needed a job. And the interviews consisted of making presentations. You would get a homework assignment and you would go into a room with a bunch of interviewers and you would you know, present. And 300 people applied for these five positions and lo and behold, I got one. And I went to Bank of America's campus uh, in Concord and J- Jeff Howard himself and several of his uh, trainers were there. And we sat in a classroom, the five of us, for two weeks and we learned how to deliver this course, Managing Inclusion. And then I co-taught with a Jeff Howard instructor until I was comfortable teaching the class myself. So 
about two, two months later, uh, I was ready to go. And I traveled the United States as well as Europe because the bank was putting every vice president, senior vice president, executive vice president, and managing director through this mandatory two-day program. And if you worked in the United States, Europe, Middle East, Africa, you had to take this class. And the 17 of us trainers uh, set about over the next three and a half years delivering this mandatory two-day class. And that's how I got into diversity and inclusion. And what's the journey been like? You've been doing this for a very long time now. What would you say is the biggest net positive and biggest net negative? Yes, I have been doing it a long time. And I think, let me just start with the net positive. There is a positive. The positive is that at least now there is a conversation about inclusion. There is a conversation about diversity. There is a realization in corporate America that you've got to be tapped in to different communities if you want to reap the benefits of their consumerism, right? It's, it, it really is in corporate America about a business case, but in the world in general, it's about a humanistic case. And this work can be very, very exhausting because it seems like we're always starting over. One of the thought leaders at City National Bank that, that does this work with me, she commented one day that until we start teaching these inclusion skills and tools at the preschool level, we will always be starting over when people enter adulthood and they get into jobs and corporations and positions where they're interfacing with different people. It can be exhausting Chitra because you're always starting over no matter how much you win today tomorrow you have to get up and start over because there's somebody who didn't get the message and we can read that every day in the newspaper people still saying and doing terrible things and the problem is that discrimination often results in harm and death and that is the urgency of the issue. That's why we can't stop doing the work, though we may be tired, because it's more than just a negative comment that might get under somebody's skin. No, discrimination in this country results in people not being able to live well. And the work that you're doing has taken on new importance with the the emergence of this pandemic, COVID-19, a lot of stimulus funding is pouring out of the federal government. A lot of big players have been swooping in like vultures and you know, billions of dollars have been devoured. Uh, what are you doing to ensure that your less privileged clients, small businesses in the communities around you are able to access this funding? And then what are you seeing in terms of the level of discrimination? Well, one thing that we have been doing at City National Bank since I've been there, and they hired me eight years ago to do this work. Um, and my work is both external and internal. So just as I work with communities of color and women inside the company, I'm also working with women and communities of color and particularly businesses externally. So I'm responsible for multicultural marketing and advertising and a lot of the sponsorships and the partnerships that we do in the community. And businesses are very, very important to me. So for the past eight years, what we've tried to do is provide thought leadership 
and fill in some of the gaps that we know minority businesses face. A lot of minority businesses don't have a history of business ownership in their families, generational businesses. So they don't have a father that can tell them how to run this business or things to look out for necessarily, or a mother who has handed this business down. A lot of minority owned businesses in this country don't have that proper type of mentorship. We also know the research and the data is very clear that loans and access to capital costs more for minorities and uh, women in this country. And so a lot of the work that I've done over the past few years is making sure that people have the proper information to make sure that they're educated, to make sure that we are providing them the tools, the knowledge, and the skills that they need to access capital or to grow capacity with their businesses. So we partner very specifically with SBDCs and CDFIs who are already doing that work that we can you know, lend support to them, they can support us. We also erected uh, a branch in the Crenshaw District in, in 2017, which was very important to us. Um, and, and so that's the work that we've done historically at City National Bank. Entrepreneurship and small business ownership is how this country was started, uh, how this company was started. But when the PPP situation happened, we quickly reached out to our small business partners, the SBDCs, the CDFIs, as well as a lot of the organizations that we work with, Asian Business Association, uh, Black Business Association, different uh, chambers, organizations such as bar associations that we work with. And even though a lot of their constituency are not our clients, we wanted to make sure that if people were having trouble getting through to their banks, that those folks could call on us. And so I formed a team of CRA folks, some relationship managers, and myself, and we did a significant calling effort as well as emails. And we were able to process uh, quite a number of loans on both the first and the second stimulus for non-clients, very small businesses. Also, we were able to quickly uh, rally our CRA efforts and convert dollars that we had into COVID-related funds. And so we were able to pump out uh, quite a few million to nonprofits who are doing COVID relief efforts for you know, people, families, kids, education, small business. And so that's how we've tried to respond. But your second part of the question, the level of um, the lack of access for small businesses through this PPP process has been horrendous. It's been horrendous. Every day you can read, and we have two people at City National Bank who capture all of the media stories around PPP and put them out there for us every day. And there are very, very few good stories. Um, I think it could have been a little better thought out by the federal government to ensure that there was a crunch and an opportunity and a procedure for these small businesses, those who needed funds, you know, even under $100,000, $50,000, $40,000. There should have been a process to ensure that those people had the opportunity to apply, and there wasn't. And if you don't know who your banker is, if you work, if you bank with one of these mega banks that's got 
60, 70, 80,000 clients, and you're not a big client, you may only have an 800 number, or you may only have the number to your branch, which may be closed. And so people couldn't even get access in a lot of cases because they didn't have a number to call. At City National Bank, we just happen, people just happen to know who their relationship manager is because that's the way we do business. So for our clients, they knew who to call. But for the non-clients, we made a proactive effort and we went out to reach uh, as many as we could that fit that very, very small business and that nonprofit category. As you know, Karen, there's been quite a high level of negativity, hatred even towards Chinese and Asian American immigrants uh, because of this pandemic. And it's just seeping into our conversations and interactions. What are you seeing during the course of your outreach? I'm seeing the same thing, Chitra, and it never ceases to amaze me how crises can sometimes bring out the worst in people. And I have seen the same thing I've heard from some of my Asian colleagues that they've heard disparaging remarks. Uh, We're going to have a In fact, our Asian American resource group is going to have a panel discussion at the end of this month, and I've got two external speakers talking about the dark side of COVID for Asian Americans. But it's just been horrendous. You've got black men wearing masks of several who have been killed now because, you know, they had on a hoodie and a mask. You've got uh, Asian Americans who not only are suffering from hearing disparaging comments, but their businesses are suffering as well simply because they are Asian owned. You've got an extraordinarily high number of Latinos who are out of work because so many of them work at those minimum wage uh, or less than minimum wage jobs on top of the traditional jobs that family members have been laid off from or furloughed from without pay. You've got the disparaging news about African-Americans who are suffering this COVID virus at higher rates and dying at higher rates than others. Uh, You've got women who many of them are not equipped to homeschool several children at a time and also still have to work and take care of all of the family matters. We've got elderly whom in this country We don't do a good job of taking care of or respecting anyway. They are suffering the ill effects. And unfortunately, we do not have a compassionate leadership. And so we're pretty much on our own. But as I always tell communities and I always tell people, we need to depend on ourselves anyway. And we should not wait for a crisis to once again Uh, lament that the government has not taken care of us because very often they do not when it comes to women and minorities and that's just how it is. And so we've got to come together as people, as citizens, as, you know, just folks here on the ground and help each other. I always tell people when I'm talking, especially young people, every single one of us has the opportunity to be an inclusive leader. And I don't care if you don't have a title, I don't care if you're not even 18 years old yet, every single one of us has the opportunity to impact at least one person in a very positive way. 
It might be your brother, it might be your sister, it might be your neighbor down the street, it might be your coworker, it might be a student sitting in the class next to you, but every single one of us pay enough attention to see when somebody is struggling, when somebody feels left out. And every single one of us has the ability to just say a good word. How are you today? Is there anything I can do for you today? I'm praying for you today. And until every single one of us starts taking that responsibility seriously every single day, we are going to continue to have an issue in this country. We have got to do better for each other and we can, we can. In addition to being uh, an incredibly successful career woman uh, in a very uh, male-dominated industry and a, and a complex industry, you also are uh, a, a performer, an entertainer, a singer, songwriter, producer. You've got your own company, your own show. Tell me a little bit about that and, and how does that dovetail into, into your day job, so to speak? Yeah, well, it, it actually kind of does. But, you know, I started off as a dancer, singer, you know, actor growing up. In fact, my very first acting role, I played the role of Heidi in the fifth grade in a production in Germany on the Air Force Base. And let me tell you, the air, military loves entertainment. So any kind of entertainment is always a big deal on the Air Force Base. And do you know, way back then, there were teachers in that elementary school who said I should not be allowed to play Heidi because I was black. But my parents and my teacher prevailed. And I played Heidi, and that just solidified my acting bug. I was already tap dancing and doing ballet, um, you know, into sports, very physical, physical person. And so I was going to be, you know, this big entertainer, and, but I wanted to go to college so I could have a backup plan, and that's what I did. And then my backup plan became part of my life. My backup plan was to get a degree in economics so that if my singing and acting didn't work out, I'd have a backup plan. But I always tell young people, Today, don't worry about a backup plan. Wherever you put your time and energy, that is what you're going to see the fruit coming from. And so I've had great life in banking. I have been extremely blessed, but I never gave up the dancing, singing, and acting. I've produced so many shows over the year for different people, written plays, done a lot of gospel plays in churches. I've produced hip-hop artists, my late husband and I. And, uh, and then before he passed, in 2007, he's like, let's produce your CD. You've been wanting to do a CD. You've been on stage forever. And I said, yay. So we did my CD. I dropped a CD in 2007. In 2008, my husband passed after 26 years of marriage. Just a fluke. Uh, he passed dead of a heart attack. Hadn't even been sick. But then I kind of went dark for a few years. And then I decided it was time to get up. And there was a couple of things that a couple of people I met that really, really inspired me. And one of them, is a woman by the name of Diana Nyad. And I, I saw Diana Nyad speak when she was 64 years old. This was a few years ago. It was about, I don't know, three, four years ago. Uh, Diana Nyad is an Olympian and she's a swimmer. She's been a sports announcer. She's a very famous woman. But she had attempted to swim from Cuba to Florida four times, three or four times, and she had failed. And she said when she got close to the age of 60, she was reflecting. And her mother had passed at the age of 60. And she thought to herself, if I follow in my mother's footsteps, I'll be dead 
in a year or two? And is, have I done everything I wanted to do in life? And she said, no, I haven't. I want to complete that swim. So she got her whole team together and they looked at every single reason why they failed and they addressed every single one of those issues. And at the age of 64, she successfully completed her swim from Cuba to Florida. And I saw her speak live about it. And I was like, oh my God, this was so amazing. There was something about that woman and her story that just got into my bones. And I said, I'm not done. I'm not done. And so Petra, I got up and I got a team together. I started producing my shows again, got a band together. And I'm going to be finished with my third CD this year. I've got several books in process, but I will be publishing at least one, if not two of them this year. They're done. They're basically done. I just need to edit them, package them up. And so I'm on fire. And the reason I'm on fire is because God has been speaking to me. After I heard Diana and I had speak, God said, what about you? He said, it is not time to sit down. I pour all of this knowledge and talent and skill into people. And then they get to be about 60, 62, 63, and they want to sit down. They want to retire when the world is ready for everything they have to give now. And I'm like, I'm with you, God. I am with you. And I am almost 60. I told you the other day, I'm saying it out loud. I have never been able to say that out loud because age, age sets up limitations in people's minds. And that's what I don't want. But it's okay because I need to inspire people my age and my generation. Get up. The world needs us. Do something spectacular because the world needs us. And that's what I'm doing right now. God told me that I have given you so much talent. They're not done yet either. That's amazing. Uh, Karen, have you had any what I call viral insights about your life and work because of COVID-19, that moment of clarity often brought upon by a crisis? Wow, that's so interesting you asked that, Chitra. I have. When, when we first came home, and I've been working at home now for 10 weeks, and when we first came home, I kind of didn't envision anything beyond more than two weeks, you know? And so I was kind of checking emails and trying to do a few things. And then I realized I got to I gotta get into a routine. And I don't like working from home. I've had the opportunity over the years to work from home, and I just don't like it. But what I figured out is it's a real blessing right now. Because everything I need here to, is, is here for me to thrive. I brought all my office stuff home. I have all my stuff here for my Karen A. Clark project. Got everything I need, need here to finish my books. Got family here. This is a real blessing. It, I can create 24 hours a day without even having to leave. And I'm so excited now. And yes, this has been a moment of clarity. It's like you have an opportunity. Don't squander it. You are so much more. I am so much more blessed than, people, than many people right now who don't have a job, who don't have income, who can't help their families because they don't have income coming in, who don't have a roof over the head. Can you imagine being homeless during COVID? who are cramped in small spaces. I used to live in a two bedroom, teeny little 800 square foot, two bedroom apartment with my late husband and my two kids for, for, for a time when they were growing up. We would be driving each other crazy right now. So what I have come to realize is I'm really, really blessed right now and I cannot squander this opportunity. I've got to use every minute that's in this day to do something spectacular for myself, for my family, for the world. That's where I'm at. That's incredible. 
What would you say to the young woman who was being trained by her dad to swim with sharks? And what would you say to your dad about the journey that you've been on? My father and I, I talked to my father a lot. My father is 85 years old. My mother passed a couple of years ago at age 80. Um, but my father is still alive. He's still active. He's still healthy. And we have discussions. I find it important to tell him how impactful he has been in my life, what an opportunity he has given me. And my dad is one of those really humble guys. He thinks, oh, Coco, yeah, I didn't do much for you. But I got to tell you, a couple of years ago when my, my brother passed, my brother passed a year after my mother died. I think he just, you know, he had a broken heart. But we were at the funeral home. And after we'd done all the arrangements, I pulled out a checkbook and I, I wrote a check for, the, for the, the whole thing. And my father said, oh, no, babe, you can't do that. And I said, dad, I'm going to do this. And he said, that's my responsibility. Your brother's my responsibility. I said, dad, you always, always want to do everything. I said, you are at an age now and you have raised wonderful children. It is a blessing that you gave me what you did so that I can sit here and write this check. You're retired. You're not even working right now. You don't need to go into your savings to write this check. You prepared me to be able to write this check. That's what you did for me, Dad, and I love you for it. And he didn't say anything, but he did not uh, insist on paying me back. So I think he kind of got it. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today and for this wonderful and inspiring conversation. Really great to have you on. It was great to be here, Chitra. Thank you so much. You have a beautiful, beautiful day. Thank you. Karen A. Clark is Senior Vice President and Multicultural Strategies Manager at City National Bank in Los Angeles. Clark is currently working to ensure that minority-owned companies in and around Los Angeles get fair access to COVID-19 federal stimulus funds. In her free time, Clark also is a singer, songwriter, and producer in her entertainment company, The Karen A. Clark Project. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.